Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7. William Shakespeare once wrote, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. A quote comes from Romeo and Juliet. Act 2, scene 2, the famous balcony scene. In that scene, the besmitten Juliet ponders to herself and actually to an eavesdropping Romeo why she cannot be united to her beloved. The central feature of the play, of course, is the rivalry between the two lovers' families, the Montagues and the Capulets. And, and Juliet wonders, why must a mere name be the cause of our separation? What's in a name? Is Romeo somehow different simply by virtue of being a Montague? If he were called by any other name, then no one in her family would think him an enemy. So what is it about the mere name Montague that makes him one? It's a fairly insightful observation. And it's one that I think appeals to our democratic sensibilities. We agree wholeheartedly with Juliet. A name is just a name. Someone is not better if they happen to be a Rockefeller or a Kennedy, and neither are they worse if they happen to be a Jones or a Smith. What defines a person is what they are, what their character is, not some random label assigned to them at birth. And of course, there's some truth in this. I think we can all recognize that someone isn't better or worse simply by the family they were born into, and neither does a name determine one's identity. And yet still, I wonder if we fully grasp the significance and even power of a name. My mind jumps immediately to Genesis 32. Jacob, whose name means he takes by the heel or even he cheats, he's returning to Canaan after spending several years with his uncle Laban in Paddan Aram. He's about to meet his brother Esau for the first time since he stole his birthright. He's anxious. He's apparently matured some over the years. He perhaps understands some of the pain that his trickery has caused. He's perhaps sorry for what he's done to his brother Esau, and yet still sorry can't undo what he's done. And now he's getting news that Esau is coming out to greet him with a large company of men. So Jacob begins to prepare for this meeting, and as he prepares, he does two things. First, he develops a plan to try to pacify his brother's wrath. And then second, he prays. And that's quite significant, by the way. The cheater, the usurper, the one who's made his way in the world by finding someone's weakness and then manipulating it to his own advantage he doesn't turn inward in this instance and try to use his guile to scheme his way out of the confrontation. Instead, he turns to God and he pleads for mercy. 
This apparently signifies an important change in Jacob. Because that evening, on the evening before he's about to meet Esau, after he sent his family on ahead and he's left alone, he encounters this man. And sort of out of the blue, the two begin to wrestle. Jacob can't defeat this man, but neither does he let the man go. All night they wrestle, and finally, as day begins to break, the man tells Jacob to let him go. Jacob refuses. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man obliges Jacob, only instead of immediately uttering a blessing, he asks Jacob what his name is. Jacob tells him, and the man answers, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with men and God and have prevailed. Israel, by the way, means he strives with God. That's Jacob, the cheater's new name. He who strives with God. And Jacob then demands to know the man's name, but the man refuses to tell him. He then blesses Jacob and the two go their separate ways. Jacob ends up calling that place, naming it Peniel, which means the face of God saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. It's a rather interesting encounter, and what it illustrates is that according to the Scripture, a name can actually be quite important. A good name can describe something. It can tell a person what something or even someone is. That's why Jacob is first named Cheater, and then he strives with God because each name actually described who Jacob was. He was born a usurper, but over time he became instead a man who strives with God. This idea of naming is a theme that's developed in the rest of the scripture as well. Abram's name is changed from a word meaning exalted father to Abraham, which means father of a multitude after God makes his covenant with him. Abram names his first son Ishmael, God hears, after he thinks that he's the heir that God has appointed. God then commands him to name the actual heir Isaac. He laughs. After Abram laughed at God for thinking that he and Sarah could have a child in their old age. Jesus, of course, was named Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation for, the angel told Joseph. He will save his people from their sins. Again, a good name can describe something. It can tell you what something is, even who someone is. Incidentally, this appears to be the reason why the angel refuses to tell Jacob his name. In the ancient world, the aspect of naming, of describing something, was so important that to name something or someone was to exercise a kind of authority over it. That's because in naming that person, you were giving them their identity, their purpose even. This is what the angel is doing when he renames Jacob, and it's why he refuses to give Jacob his own name. So, what's in a name? Well, nothing. If the name doesn't describe what the object is. The mere name, Rose, doesn't necessarily describe the fragrance or appearance of the flower. 
Neither does the name Montague or Capulet sufficiently describe who Romeo and Juliet are as people. It's a little bit different, right, if we're talking about a praying mantis or a toaster or a fireman. You catching my drift here? There's a reason why Shakespeare chose the rose for his illustration and not, say, the bleeding heart. And that's because the bleeding heart's name actually describes what it looks like. Juliet could say a, a bleeding heart by any other name would look the same, but we'd all be thinking, yeah, but that thing looks like a bleeding heart, right? The name actually fits. And that's the power of a good name. A good name describes. It can even denote function or purpose. So what are you, Christian? What names or titles should be associated with you? That's a question I want to explore with you over the next several weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Once again, I've entitled this series in 1 Corinthians Christ in the world, because I think this largely describes what Paul is doing in this letter. He's explaining what Christianity looks like in the world. The Christians have written Paul with some key questions about how to apply their faith, what their faith looks like in action, and as they, as they try to live their lives in a largely secular society. And in this letter, Paul is answering that question. As we'll see, he's going to explain to them that Christianity operates by a completely different set of principles than what they're going to find in the surrounding culture. In short, as Christians, we live differently. And as we've seen over the past several weeks, that appears to be a problem for the Corinthians. The city of Corinth was not only a vitally important port city, but it was essentially built for the expressed purpose of giving restless Roman freedmen an opportunity to make something of themselves. It was a place where people would often go to try to make their break in the world. And this means that the city was enamored with the notion of prestige and social acceptance. And the Corinthian believers were no different. Yes, they wanted to follow Jesus. They were Christians. And yet they also wanted to be accepted by the broader society. In fact, it appears that they not only wanted to be accepted by the broader society, but they even brought many of the same attitudes and priorities that prevailed in Corinth into the church. As Paul opens this letter, we discover that this worldly way of thinking has become a source of contention between Paul and the church. It would seem that the Corinthians were looking for something a, a little more cosmopolitan than the system of doctrine that Paul had imparted to them. And so in the interim, between Paul's second and third missionary journeys, they not only started to wrestle over these questions that they're sending to Paul, but they've actually started to turn to other sources for their answers as well. Paul rightly identifies the root of this problem, and it's pride. He observes that rivalries have developed in the church. These rivalries demonstrate that it isn't truth the Corinthians are necessarily after, but status. And that desire for status is going to be a problem because the instruction that Paul is going to give them most definitely is not going to result in that. The world is going to look down on the kind of thinking that Paul has to offer on his way of life. And so if it's status that they're after, then there's only one way that this whole situation is going to end up. 
And that's what the Corinthians rejecting Paul's instruction. Again, there's a sense in which this rejection has already started. And so as Paul begins this letter, he realizes that the first thing he needs to do before he can move on to these other issues is address the worldliness and pride that's infecting the Corinthian church and skewing their way of thinking. This is where we've been over the past few months. We've been working our way through the section of 1 Corinthians where Paul is trying to address the hard issues that are leading the Corinthians to reject his instruction. And right here in chapter 4, we hit the climax and completion of this section. This is where Paul is going to take all the concepts that we've been learning about over the past few months and start driving them to a very pointed and emotionally intense conclusion. It's where he tells the Corinthians, so now this is what you need to do based off of what I've been telling you. These instructions all have to do with the Corinthians' regard for Paul. And that shouldn't surprise us. I've said that the problem with the Corinthians' thinking is that it's causing them to reject Paul's ministry and that Paul needs to address this before he moves on to answer these other questions. So it shouldn't surprise us that the conclusion of this opening section primarily has to do with how the Corinthians should think about Paul and his ministry. He's going to apply what he's been saying by saying, you need to change the way you think about me. In the process, Paul is going to present three different images which are meant to shape the way the Corinthians think about his ministry. And what's so helpful about these images is that they shouldn't just shape the way that we think about Paul. Rather, they should also shape the way we think about ourselves. Remember, the issues here are worldliness and pride. A worldliness that's actually driven by pride. It's a worldliness that's driven by a desire to be regarded as something. Paul is combating all of this by explaining his own way of thinking. He's explaining how he thought about his ministry and how he related to the world. This means that as we get to this part where Paul says, you know, you really need to think of me like this because this is how I approach the world. He's not just showing us why we need to heed his instruction. He's also setting an example for us about how we should think of ourselves in relation to the world. In fact, this is going to become even more apparent by the time we get to the end of chapter 4. Paul wants us to not only think of him this way, but he wants us to follow his example in the world. So what are Christians? If you could name us, what would you call us? Or at least, how should we see ourselves in relation to the world? And how should it affect the way we interact with the world and its wisdom? That's what we're going to explore over the next three weeks with these three images that we see here in 1 Corinthians 4. The first image is stewardship. As we think about ourselves in relation to the world, what we are and what this tells us about how we should interact with the world, we should understand that we are stewards of the mysteries of God, stewards of the gospel. We see this in verses 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and read this together. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7. 
the Apostle Paul says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So as Paul drives to this conclusion... And as he's trying to bring the Corinthians back under his authority, he tells them, this is how you should regard us. This is how you should think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This statement not only gives us tremendous insight into how Christians should think about their leaders, which actually is pretty significant in its own right, right? I mean, if you recall, Paul was just addressing these, these various rivalries that had developed in the church around these assorted Christian leaders, which the Corinthians were evaluating according to a very worldly set of standards. So this statement should be helpful in that respect. It shows us the way that we should think of our Christian leaders, even the qualities and the characteristics that we should esteem in our leaders. And if we wanted to, we could spend a whole sermon just on that. There are some very distorted perspectives out there about what makes a successful pastor. And it's that very distorted perspective that very often leads Christians to place themselves under the authority of men that build with exactly the kind of subpar construction materials that Paul was warning about back in verses 10 to 15 of chapter 3. That would, no doubt, be a worthwhile subject to consider and explore here this morning. But... This statement, it not only gives us insight into what we should think about that, how we should evaluate or esteem our leaders in the church, but it also gives us insight into how we as a church should view our own interaction with the world. Basically, Paul is saying, as I approach my relationship with the world and even my relationship with the church, basically, as I do ministry, I think of myself like this. Friends, if we want to understand the right way to approach the world, if we want to understand the sort of attitude that we should have as we try to reach the world with the gospel of Christ, then we need to listen up and adopt the same posture that we see modeled here by Paul. We need to think of ourselves as stewards. And this is where I want us to spend our time. I want us to consider what it means to think of ourselves as stewards. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be servants of Christ and steward of the mysteries of God? I think you could break Paul's answer down into two parts. And that's the priority and the perspectives of the steward. Paul shows us both the priority 
That is to say, the goal of the steward, what the steward hopes to achieve, what he considers his mission to be. And he tells us about the perspectives that shape the steward's approach to achieving that priority. The steward doesn't only have a particular function that he's trying to achieve, but he's going about it in a particular way. And that method is shaped by his position, his identity as a steward. So let's go ahead and look at these two aspects of stewardship, beginning with the priority of the steward. And that's faithfulness. Faithfulness. The steward's chief goal, his main objective, is to be found faithful. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Once again, the main source of contention at this point in the letter is the Corinthians' questioning of Paul's ministry. They think his message rather simple, his style of communication rather quaint. It certainly doesn't match the sort of sophistication that one would expect to find in respectable society. In short, Paul seems kind of foolish. He seems sort of dumb. And because of this, many of the Corinthians, it would seem, are peeling off of Paul in order to associate themselves with men of superior intellectual sophistication, men like Apollos, whose content and style seem much more acceptable, not only to the broader culture, but even to their own particular sensibilities, which, again, they brought with them out of the culture. Basically, the, the problem is that their mind has not yet been completely renewed by the scripture. And because of that, a lot of what Paul is saying to them doesn't make sense. They've still got some foundational issues that need to be worked out in their intellectual and spiritual paradigm. Up to this point, Paul has answered this rejection in two ways. First, he explains that he didn't preach in a way that might be considered convincing or wise because God doesn't save through mere intellectual understanding. He saves through power. Essentially, he notes that God is saving in such a way that he alone receives the glory and salvation. And so not only is Paul literally unable to actually save anyone through the power of his persuasion, but even if someone did come to salvation under those circumstances, it would still lead to the wrong result. They'd either boast in themselves or they'd boast in Paul. Basically, they do the exact thing that the Corinthians have done here anyways. And Paul obviously didn't want that. He didn't want to undermine God's purposes in salvation. And so he preached the gospel in such a way that only God could get the credit for it, and that meant preaching in a simple and straightforward manner. Again, that's the first way that Paul answers this rejection. He defends his ministry by saying, I preach that way on purpose, and that's because the kind of preaching that actually accomplishes God, God's intent in salvation is this kind of preaching. I think of his words back at the beginning of this section in chapter 1 when he says, verse 17, 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul understood that there was actually a detrimental effect to clever speaking. And that's why he didn't speak in a clever way. Second, Paul also answers this rejection by noting that at the same time, he did have some wisdom that he could offer them, some knowledge that people could consider wise. The problem was that he couldn't offer it to the Corinthians because they were not yet ready to receive it. This is the point he makes in chapters 2 and 3 as he explains that a person can only receive this wisdom through the Spirit of God. And the problem is that the Corinthians were not thinking or acting according to the Spirit of God. They were acting like what Paul would call the natural man, that is to say a person without the Spirit. Either the hearer is going to get puffed up in this situation, or, and I think this is actually the the response that Paul is anticipating if he tries to, to speak to them and give them this knowledge, they're going to reject it as foolishness. Paul understands that's going to be the problem if he tries to give this wisdom to natural men. They weren't yet ready for it. As we move through chapter 3, we then see Paul pleading with the Corinthians to put away this kind of thinking, this merely human frame of mind. He informs them that he and Apollos were actually co-workers, not competitors. Their ministries differ, not because they were offering alternative systems of thought, but because they were playing different positions on the same team. To break in the camps of Paul versus Apollos was not only unspiritual, in the very literal sense of that word, they were literally acting as if they had forgotten that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. But even more than this, it was only serving to weaken the Corinthian church. Again, Paul and Apollos were operating in different capacities. One had the responsibility of planting, another came along and watered, and they were each equipped to perform their particular function. So for one wing of the church to cut themselves off from the work of another, regarding them to be inferior, that would only serve to deny themselves the benefits of that man's ministry. Paul tells them, this is so misguided. Don't you understand? It's all yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they all belong to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ is God's. So now, with all of that in the background, Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. The us there is clearly inclusive. It's inclusive of both Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And I think it's fair to say Timothy and Silas. And whoever else might be serving in some kind of leadership capacity in the church, they're all to be seen in this light because this is the role they're playing in the church. They're stewards. They're servants. And the implication, of course, is that they do exercise a kind of authority, but while they do exercise this authority, it's most definitely a delegated authority. A steward, of course, is is basically a kind of manager. In the ancient world, a wealthy landowner would turn over a portion of his wealth, even perhaps all of his wealth, over to a trusted servant, a slave even. And he would allow him to manage his resources on his behalf. 
If you're familiar with the parable of the talents, for instance, that's an illustration of stewardship. The servants in that story are stewards. In that scenario, it clearly was not the prerogative of the servant to spend the master's wealth in whatever way they saw fit. Instead, the servant understood that it was his responsibility to take care of those resources and use them in a way that pleased their master. This is a responsibility that Paul highlights here when he says, verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So stewards exercise a kind of authority. Again, after all, they you know, manage the master's wealth on his behalf, but clearly it was a delegated kind of authority. It was an authority that they exercised while under authority. And that's the picture that Paul is aiming at here. It would seem that this imagery is supposed to affect the way the Corinthians view the ministries of Paul and his companions. And it appears that it's supposed to do this in at least a couple of ways. First, it, it would seem that this imagery should certainly negate their temptation to boast in their teachers. The Corinthians, remember, are treating these various teachers as if they were leading independent wings within the church. And the implication clearly is that they're all innovators who are actually developing one system of Christianity over against another. You know, Christ, they would say, is the one who started this system of philosophy called Christianity. But then Paul and Cephas and Apollos, they're all coming along in after and adding their own twist to it. I know that probably sounds strange for where we stand today in church history, but remember, this was all very new at the time. The idea of a centralized and unchanging system of truth, all under the singular authority of Jesus Christ, who alone is the head of the church, that wasn't necessarily a given just yet for people. People are still figuring out what Christian doctrine is and how to think about this thing we call Christianity through writings like this one here in 1 Corinthians. So again, that's how they had been seeing Christianity, almost like a kind of philosophical school with these various teachers who are all giving their own twist on the system. And so long as that's the case, then each of these leaders would have something to boast in, something even to admire about them. That they would be these brilliant thinkers or powerful communicators who could be idolized for their intelligence, wisdom, and insight. And this is, of course, what the Corinthians are actually wanting others to think about themselves as well by virtue of their association with these thought leaders. And what Paul is telling them here is, we're actually not leaders per se. We're not leaders, actually. At least not in the way that you're thinking about it. We're not originators or innovators. We're not visionaries. We're stewards. Our job is to manage, not to innovate and develop. We're supposed to take our master's wealth, which he's entrusted to us, and distribute it to the members of his household for their common good. Translation, if there's anyone you should be praising in this situation, it isn't Paul or Apollos. It's Jesus. Because everything we have to give to you comes from him. That's one way this image should transform the Corinthians and their thinking about their leaders and their thinking about Paul. Second, and related to this point, it should also affect the way they evaluate their leaders. 
Again, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this point on examining how this image should affect the way we think of leadership in the church. But clearly the implication is that Paul wants the Corinthians to evaluate their leaders not according to their communication skills or their creativity or their originality, but according to their faithfulness. You understand there's a sense in which you could say that my job as a pastor is to be unoriginal. I'll tell you, honestly, there's a sense in which I get sort of frustrated by that. And I actually really enjoy it at the same time. It's one of the biggest frustrations and one of the biggest joys of ministry. My job is to be unoriginal. It's frustrating because it means that I don't really get to be creative. Like when it comes to the sermon, I don't get to treat my messages like a blank canvas on which I get to paint my masterpiece. No, it's more like one of those paint-by-numbers crafts. Let's connect the dots. I'm only allowed to spell out for you what the Bible tells me to say to you. I don't get to insert myself into the discussion. That can be sort of frustrating at times because there's stuff rolling around in my head that I often want to tell you that I don't get to say. And I can feel constrained by the text. On the other hand, this is also one of my biggest joys. Because it actually means that all the stuff that I think is really brilliant, but which is honestly pretty stupid, it never comes out of my mouth. Instead, I get to stand up here and proclaim to you what God has said and come off looking like I know what I'm talking about because of it. That's kind of the benefit, right? Guys, that's all that a pastor is or really should be. They're a glorified plagiarist. Our job isn't to be original, it's to copy to look over Jesus' shoulders, right? <laughs> Write down what's on his paper. It's to take what God has said and pass it on to his people. And that's the way Paul wants the Corinthians to begin evaluating their leaders, not according to their original ideas or their creative plans, but according to their faithfulness to both do and say what they've been told. Again, I think this is really the main thrust of what Paul is after here at this point. He's trying to get the Corinthians to reevaluate the way they think about his ministry. You even see this come out most particularly in verses 5 and 6. And Paul says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The point there is that it's not necessarily the product of a man's ministry that defines whether or not he's a successful leader, right? Rather, his faithfulness. He's going to be judged not by any external criteria, but according to the purposes of the heart. It's his character that matters more than anything else. His willingness to do what he's been told. This is likewise how Paul wants the Corinthians to regard his ministry, the ministry of his fellow leaders, he wants them to think of it not according to their skill or insight or creativity, but according to their faithfulness as stewards. So this is one thing that we should take from this text, one observation to take away. However, I want you to note here how this image affected the way Paul himself viewed his own ministry. I want you to observe how Paul's understanding of his identity, his role, informed Paul about the kinds of priorities that he should adopt in his ministry. Verse 2, once again, Paul expresses 
the priority of the stewards saying, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Then starting in verse 3, he explains how this concept shaped his approach to ministry. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Again, the Corinthians are judging Paul. They're holding his ministry in, uh, in disdain. They, they think it's inferior. And what Paul says here is that their opinion of him didn't directly impact or shape the way he did ministry. Now, as I've pointed out in some of our previous messages in this section, this isn't exactly the same thing as saying that Paul didn't care about what people thought. That's actually not true. Paul was very careful to consider how people might perceive his message. And he was very careful to even tailor the packaging of his message for the sake of clearly communicating the gospel. However, while, while Paul was, was mindful of how others might perceive his message, this is also not to say that he was necessarily discouraged if people rejected him for it. Going back to chapter 2, Paul understood that some people simply lacked the spiritual capacity to receive the message that he had to offer. So if there was a low turnout, so to speak, meaning if people didn't respond to what he had to say, he didn't necessarily see that as a sign that he needed to go back to the drawing board and rethink how to present his teaching in a way that it would be received. Instead, he understood that sometimes the reason why people didn't respond was simply because they were not spiritually equipped to receive his teaching. This is, once again, much of his point here. His exact words back in chapter 2 were, if you recall, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, but they're folly to him, and he's unable to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And then he said, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That's language that Paul is invoking once again here, as he tells the Corinthians, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And he's letting them know, he's letting these fleshly and quote-unquote merely human Christians know, quite frankly, I could really care less what you think about my ministry. I could care less if you think my ministry inferior. Because I'm not accountable to you. My job isn't to please you, but to please my master. This is one way that this image of stewardship affected Paul's approach to ministry. It meant that Paul was not easily swayed by the opinions of others. And that's because when he spoke, he saw it not so much as a service to the people that he was speaking to, as much as he saw it as his duty before God. In fact, what I think is really interesting is what he says starting in the second half of verse 3. After saying that he didn't allow other people's opinions of him to shape his ministry, he says, second, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's an interesting statement because after saying, I don't really care what you think of me, Paul doesn't then say, you know, what really matters is what I think about myself. That's where I think a lot of people would tend to go. They'd turn inward and say to themselves, you know, the only opinion that I really need to care about is my own. You know, sort of a, a let your conscience be your guide kind of thing. Paul actually doesn't go there. 
He acknowledges that he's not aware of any violation of his conscience, but then he observes, but I am not thereby acquitted. Meaning Paul doesn't consider even his own conscience, his own feelings, his own opinions to be the final authority, the final judge of his actions. Now, I don't think Paul is saying this in order to discourage personal reflection. I don't even think Paul is saying this due to any implicit mistrust in his own motives. You know, I think sometimes we might think that's what he's saying, sort of a, you know, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it kind of thing. Paul actually seems to have a fairly good opinion of his own motives here. So I don't think that's his point. Instead, it would appear that in context, Paul is making this statement to underscore this idea that the steward operates under authority. He is not his own. Meaning, not only is he not accountable to others, but neither is he simply free to do as he wishes. In other words, I think this clarifies that when Paul says, honestly, I could care less what you think, it's not because Paul is simply indifferent to the thoughts and feelings of the Corinthians, Neither is it a statement that Paul makes out of arrogance, right? Because he thinks he's so much wiser and better than the Corinthians. Rather, it's a statement he makes out of constraint. Essentially, he's not permitted to consider their opinions. He's not allowed. Reason being, he's a servant, a steward. And that means there's only one person's opinion that he's even permitted to consider. And that's the opinion of his master. He seeks not the approval of men, but the approval of God. So again, this is one label, one name that we should attach to ourselves as we interact with the world. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. And what this should communicate to us is that we should make it our goal not to please our neighbor, nor even to please ourselves but to please our master. So what does this really mean? How is this concept applied practically, this notion of stewardship? I think there are a lot of ways that we can answer that question, but Paul seems to apply it in three specific ways here. Remember, the context here is this attitude of worldliness and pride and the rivalries that are emerging in the Corinthian church as a result of these rivalries. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when Paul applies this image, he applies it to these kinds of attitudes specifically. So, suppose you're struggling with pride, suppose you're struggling with this desire uh, for approval from your brothers and sisters in Christ, and suppose that this pride is leading you to compete with your brothers and sisters in Christ. How can this concept of stewardship help correct your way of thinking? What does it direct you to do? Paul provides the answer in verses 6 and 7. That's where we discover the perspectives of the steward. Paul says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I think you can see quite clearly here how Paul is intending to present this image not only as a paradigm through which to judge his own ministry, but also as an example for the Corinthians to follow as well. 
He says, verse 6, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your, your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. That these things in this statement obviously applies, obviously applies to much more than just the image of stewardship. You could actually say it, it starts as early as chapter 1 when Paul notes that he has this report from Chloe's people that some are saying, I follow Paul, and others, I follow Apollos. Paul takes that report. He explains the theological problems with the pride that's driving those rivalries in chapters 1 and 2. He then applies those concepts to him and Apollos specifically in chapter 3. And so now he says, I've applied these things. And that these things isn't only referring to the concept of stewardship. It's really more of a summary statement of the whole that Paul has been trying to communicate through chapters 1 through 3. Still, those chapters do culminate with this concept of stewardship, right? Paul is saying, because of these things, this is how you should regard us as stewards. And the perspectives that emerge here are also, I think you'll see, they're very consistent with this concept. So I think it's still fair to connect what Paul says here with this idea of stewardship. And the first perspective that emerges is this. The steward guards what's been entrusted to him. Once again, the steward guards what's been entrusted to him. You see this in the first application that Paul provides. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Do you guys remember how back in chapter 3, I told you that when Paul warned them, warned the Corinthians about building on the foundation that he laid with subpar materials, that I told you that he was warning them about the introduction of non-Christian doctrine into the church. That he was telling them this desire for distinction is going to lead you to distinguish yourselves through use of non-Christian concepts. Well, that's what Paul is warning them about here as well. He's explicitly telling them, I'm telling you these things so that you may learn from us, meaning both Paul and Apollos, by the way, they were both on the same page on this issue. He says, I'm telling you these things that you may learn from us, not to go beyond what is written. What is written here may refer to the scriptures. It may refer to what Paul has personally told them, written to them about. Either way, the principle is basically the same. He's telling them, stay true to what you have received. Guard what's been entrusted to you. This is a concept that you see come up often in Paul's letters. It's incredibly obvious that Paul saw his entire life as a stewardship. He had been called by Christ to perform a particular task, to proclaim a particular message, and he needed to be, needed to be careful to guard that deposit in his ministry to the Gentiles. There are several responsibilities that seem to flow out of this concept for Paul. Paul understood, for instance, that he had a responsibility to share this message and to persevere in sharing it, even in the face of opposition. He also understood that he had the responsibility to proclaim this message with precision. Not only what he said, but how he lived even, had to be carefully crafted so that his audience could understand what he was trying to communicate. And it most certainly meant that what he said couldn't be distorted by error in any way. One rather interesting responsibility that emerges as Paul discusses this concept of stewardship with his protege, Timothy, 
is the need to keep from adding to this message and to keep from going beyond what had been entrusted to him. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, for instance, Paul tells Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Chapter 6, he even concludes this letter, warning Timothy, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now, the danger here is apparent. People are leaving the faith in order to chase after these speculations, Paul calls them. They're adding to what would be uh, foundational Christian doctrine. They're adding to the faith. And do you know what the root of these speculations is? I think you see the answer when Paul says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This is the same thing you see taking place in 1 Corinthians. It's this desire to be seen as knowledgeable and to be seen as being in the know. And what this is, is pride. Again, people want to be seen as knowledgeable. They want to be seen as smart. And so they begin to go beyond the plain and simple reading of the Scripture in order to demonstrate how much better they are, how much more they know than everyone else around them. I mean, this is basically how we get liberal theologians, isn't it? Some teacher wants to demonstrate how smart they are. They want to demonstrate how cultured and quote-unquote unbiased they are. So what do they do? They begin appealing to an outside source of authority and stand in judgment over the Scripture. Listen, guys, that's not the attitude of the steward, is it? The steward doesn't stand in judgment over the Scripture. They stand in judgment under it. Now, you may think that I'm just bashing people on the theological left when I say this, but I'll tell you, it's more than possible for people on the theological right to do the exact same thing. I mean, Pharisees, right? They do the exact same thing that the liberal does, just on the other side of the spectrum. They don't go to outside sources necessarily, but they still make the Scripture say more than it actually says. So again, they do this, right? So again, they can show themselves off about how smart they are and how righteous they are to the rest of the church. That's error too. God tells us, Deuteronomy 4, 2, that we are permitted neither to take away from the Word of God nor to add to it. Both the Pharisee and the theological liberal are actually doing the same thing. They're going beyond what is written and they're doing it for the same reason. And that's to show off their great learning. It's their pride. This is not the perspective of the steward. The steward understands that he has one job, and that's to take care of what has been entrusted to him. Now, that doesn't mean that he's like the third servant in the parable of the talents, and you know, who for fear of the master just takes what he has and sticks it in the dirt, you know, kind of cut off every interaction with the world, or simply refuse to think very deeply about the implications of Scripture. No, rather it means that the steward is careful and how he manages what has been given to him. Like a good Berean, he doesn't just ignore what a guy like Paul might say to him. 
but he carefully examines what he hears and says, according to the Scripture, so that both what he proclaims and what he receives are true. And again, I think this is what you see modeled by Paul throughout this letter here in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't cut himself off from the world. And he certainly doesn't avoid theological reflection. Instead, he takes great care to make sure that how he interacts with the world is consistent with the truth that's been entrusted to him. So again, this is our first perspective. The steward takes care of what's been entrusted to him. Perspectives number two and three, I want us to look at these together because I really think they belong together. Perspective number two, the steward doesn't see himself as better than his fellow servants. Again, the steward doesn't see himself as better than his fellow servants. And perspective number three, the steward receives with gratitude what has been entrusted to him. He receives with gratitude what's been entrusted to him. Again, the reason why the Christian is going to be tempted to go beyond what's been given to him or her, the reason why they will not function as a steward and guard what's been entrusted, it ultimately comes back to a hard issue, and that's pride. That's what we see going on here. The Corinthians want to be regarded as wise and sophisticated. They want to distinguish themselves from their brothers and sisters, and this is leading them away from what they received from Paul into a more novel expression of their faith. So then, if a Christian is going to avoid this kind of error, if they're going to stay free from the world's influence to their faith, then what must be addressed? Again, it's their pride. They're never going to stay at home, so to speak, so long as they want to lift themselves up above their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what Paul addresses here as he continues to conclude this section on rivalry in the church. He says, verse 6, that he's applied these things to him and Apollos, not only so that they would learn not to go beyond what is written, but, quote, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He continues, verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul doesn't only want them to understand that they need to be rooted in what they've received, but he wants them to learn not to try to compete with each other, since that's the root of their problem. That's what's leading them astray outside of the faith. And how are they going to learn that? Well, it's by learning that they don't actually have anything to boast in. And the reason they don't have anything to boast in is because as stewards, right, everything they have, they've received. I've mentioned this before. But I've heard it said that telling someone they're beautiful is a lot like saying congratulations on your face. And when you put it in those terms, you can see how silly it is, right, to praise someone for their beauty. After all, they didn't do anything to earn that beauty, did they? They didn't make themselves beautiful. No, that was given to them. In a sense, you could say that maybe their beauty is to be admired or appreciated, but it's not really something to be praised. In a sense, that will, that's what Paul is trying to point out here regarding the gifts that the Corinthians would boast in. 
So say you have some tremendous spiritual gift. Say you're a fantastic teacher or take it to the extreme, right? In chapter 12, Paul is going to indicate that the apostles are the, of the highest order of gifting in the church, so to speak. So say you've been called as an apostle and you've been given all the accompanying signs of apostleship. Is that something to boast in? Paul would say no. And the reason he'd say no is because those are gifts from God. You didn't earn them. Meaning they're not something that you can take credit for any more than the supermodel walking the runway can take credit for the genetics that gave her a beautiful face. And so Paul asked these Corinthians, who sees anything different in you? Are you catching that? Paul is asking them, what makes you think you're so special? They might say, well, my gifts. But Paul asked them, what do you have that you didn't receive? Meaning the, the gifts aren't what make you special. You know, a rose by any other name, right? I mean, so you were born into a rich family. You're a Montague or a Capulet. What does that tell me about you as a person? And the answer is nothing. Again, it's the Spirit who provides these things, right? Chapter 2, He's the one who gives knowledge. He's the one who gives understanding. If you're especially effective at ministry, as Apollos was, who's responsible for that? It's God who causes the growth, right? We're actually not that different. The only thing that distinguishes one Christian from another, at least according to the things that the Corinthians are boasting in, the only thing that distinguishes them is the grace of God. And the result of this should be that no one in the church should see themselves as better, to, better than another. The apostle at the top and the one who speaks in tongues, which by the way, Paul lists at the bottom. I'll just point that out, chapter 12. They're basically the same. They're both servants. They're both stewards. One has just been put in charge of a different portion of his master's wealth. But take the wealth away, they're basically the same. There's no difference. And if they could just realize that, if the Corinthians could just see that both the richer steward and the poorer steward are still both just servants who have each been entrusted with varying measures of God's grace for the building up of God's household, then they wouldn't be tempted to go beyond what has been entrusted to them. Instead, you know what they're going to be tempted to do? You know what they're going to want to do once they realize this? They're going to want to be found faithful. A couple of weeks back, I asked you if you've ever done anything that's legitimately praiseworthy. There are things that you can do as a Christian that are legitimately praiseworthy. And did you know what it is that you can do that's legitimately praiseworthy, praiseworthy as a steward of the mysteries of God? They may not be praised for what they are entrusted with, right? Like a steward's not praised for that. But they're most certainly worthy of praise for how they've handled the master's wealth. Indeed, in this very passage, right, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to be faithful partly on the promise that the faithful servant will one day receive his condemnation from God. That's what he mentions back in chapter 3 when he talks about the the, the way that a servant builds on his foundation is what he brings up here, where he, when he notes that the Lord will come and he will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his condemnation or commendation from God. 
You know, the seven-foot-tall athlete may not be worthy of praise simply for being born with the ability to dunk a basketball. But when that same athlete realizes what he's been given and adds to that giftedness, hard work, and determination, and becomes the very best basketball player that he can be, there is something that's commendable about that, isn't there? So also it is with the steward of God. He's not worthy of praise simply for what he's been given. But he's most definitely worthy depending on how he handles it. If the Christian makes this realization that what they are is a steward and that what they'll be judged by is their faithfulness and that they'll be judged by God, not their peers, this is what will ultimately preserve them from the world's influence and keep them rooted and grounded in the truth. So what are you, Christian? How should you see yourself in relationship with the world? And how should it affect the way you interact with the world? This is one image, one name that you should attach to yourself. You are a steward. And what that means is that you should strive to be faithful, to preserve what's been entrusted to you. I close with these words from 2 Timothy. As Paul prepares to discharge his duty and maintain his stewardship, even at the point of death, he tells Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray.